You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Welcome to Voice Junkie. Conference finals finally came to an end last night with the Toronto Raptors going above or going on top of the number one seed, Milwaukee Bucks. So, a lot of things I, I want to decompress about this series that was interesting. A lot of people picked the Bucks for obvious reasons because they're the number one seed and they have, you know, arguably the best player of this season as far as MVP votes is concerned with uh, Giannis Atatakumpo. I hope I said that right. But the Greek freak is probably going to win MVP this season. So seeing him and his team go out in six games against the Raptors is a little disappointing on the on, on the surface. But if you go underneath the surface and kind of break down this team and the struggles that they have, the 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 uh the struggles that they overcame in the past couple of seasons, then you you can kind of see things a little differently. So what I mean by that is that we forget this Milwaukee Bucks team, this same team. I mean, if you take away Brooke Lopez and I think Ilya Silva, you know, a couple players, role players. If you take away those guys, this, they're essentially the same team. They finished 44 and 38 a season ago. They were finished seventh in the East. So this is the same freaking team. To see that they've plus 16 in the win column in, a, in one season. To have that kind of turnaround, of course, with the addition of uh, Coach Budenholzer, he's a great coach, Greg Popovich, disciple, we've seen what he did in Atlanta, so we know the guy can coach. So they went up plus 16 in victories and wins in one season. So they were always a project. They were always a team that was on the verge. They were always a team that were a couple seasons away. So to see that, see them accomplish what they've accomplished this season with uh, being the number one seed in the entire NBA, I mean, the number one uh, team in the entire NBA when it comes to victories, uh, wins, and having, you know, this year, arguably this year's MVP in Giannis Antetokounmpo, you have to give props to this team and and, and give props to Coach Budenholzer for turning it around as quick as he did. So in retrospect, if you just break it down from that perspective, then this, this loss against the Raptors isn't so... Uh, you know, disappointing. Because think about it. On paper, the Raptors were always a better team. We've, we ignored that because we was focusing too much on wins and losses in the regular season. And we didn't really focus on the paper. And on paper, you got Mark Gasol. You got, you know, he's a former defensive player of the year. You got Kawhi Leonard, obviously two-time defending uh, a defensive player of the year and arguably top five player in the entire NBA if he's actually playing and he's not hurt. You got Kyle Lowry, five-time All-Star. You have Serge Ibaka, who's been an All-Star, who's also been to a finals before. So you had all of this experience, all of these All-Star, you know, appearances and, 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 and just so much uh, experience on that side. So, you know, on paper, the Raptors should have been favored in the series. Um, I thought that, you know, this was one of those seasons where a team like the Bucks could get on this magic carpet ride and ride that son of a bitch all the way into the NBA Finals, but that didn't happen. In the end of the day, the best team won. 
And arguably, the Raptors probably would have been the best team in the regular season during the East, uh, in the East, if Kawhi Leonard played more games. I mean, Kawhi did miss, you know, a ton of games because uh, they kept him away as far as um, uh, as far as uh, you know, back-to-back games are concerned. Implemented quote-unquote load management for him, which is i.e. Kawhi, listen, we're here to do whatever makes you comfortable. Because in the end of the day, we want you to re-sign. We want you to put your name in that dotted line and take that super max that we're going to offer you once the playoffs is over. Whether that happens or not, who knows? It'll be cool if Kawhi did the complete opposite of what everybody expected him to do and just stayed with Toronto. And, you know, that would really shake up the NBA. But, that you know, that's a later note. I mean, you just kind of seen that Toronto had the momentum. Once they won... They held serve those first, uh, what, game three and game four. They held serve at home, winning those two games. And then once they stole game five on the road in Milwaukee, that right there kind of told me, like, yeah, this thing might be over. And it was. Toronto trailed most of the game in game six, um, and they turned it around in the third quarter, which they've done in the last few games. They've dominated third quarters against the Bucks. The Bucks. One thing I love about the NBA and NBA playoffs more specifically is that every team has warts. Once the playoffs starts, you, you don't really see it during a regular season, but once the playoffs start, you really, really get to see those warts that each team has magnified. You see it magnified. You see all the little, you know, things that every team has to work on. Those little weaknesses are highlighted tremendously during the playoffs because what happens in the playoffs is it gets games get more physical and everything is shrunken down and condensed to the half court. And if you're not a really good half court team, i.e. like the Philadelphia 76ers, they're not really great in the half court. And yes, the Milwaukee Bucks, they're not very good at half court. So once you see that, those teams really, really struggle. And that's what happened with the Milwaukee Bucks. They just struggled in and out of half-court sets. They couldn't really get set up. And they also showed, for me, it also showed that the Milwaukee Bucks, they have a talent issue. They don't really have, you know, super talented guys on that team. They have a very good core group of uh, plug-and-play players that you could just kind of plug and play them at any role, any position, at any time in the game. They're really good role players. That's what they are. They don't really have a star on that team aside from Antetokounmpo. They're going to have to go in the offseason and find a good guy, a good, uh, you know, I don't know. They're going to have to find somebody, whether that's a guard or, you know, two guard or, or four or scoring forward. They need someone when the half court offense, I mean, when their full court breaks down the half court, um, offense and they have to execute they need somebody who could get their own shot off at will whether that's in the post or whether that's in isolation they don't have that right now because even Giannis is not very good at isolation because Giannis doesn't really have a jumper to go with his incredible breakaway speed to the basket so what Toronto did is they just walled him off from the basket and they said hey we're gonna have your other guys your your others as Shaq calls them the role players we're going to have those guys beat us. And we know, we feel confident that those guys aren't talented enough to beat us. And they, the gamble was right. 
So shout out to the coach in the Toronto Raptors, Nick Nurse. He really played, you know, he played that zone defense, and that zone defense really bothered Giannis throughout the series. And the other players just didn't step up. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. So the Bucks went down four straight games. They lost four straight games. They didn't lose two straight all season. So to see what happened to the Bucks, see their demise, you got to give credit to the Raptors and just, you know, adjusting after, you know, game one and two. They adjusted. They made the adjustments they had to make. And, you know, they ended up winning the series. And Kawhi Leonard was great. You know, he was, I mean, when Kawhi is going good, Kawhi could be top two in the league. There's people putting him above KD when he's when he's right, when he's healthy. Because you're getting, you know, all, you know, you're getting all-star scoring on top of great all-star defense. First team type of stuff we're talking about. So to see, you know, the Raptors win, I wasn't really surprised. I didn't really have a stake in anybody winning because these teams, you know, came in, in my opinion, they were both really equal. You had the one and you had the two seed. And, you know, it shook out the way it did. So what it didn't really surprise me. But I just want to break down some of the numbers. So the top two players on each roster. So Giannis only averaged 23 points in the series. Eh, it's not great. Um, he needed to be above 25 points. He had to be 25, 26 points in order to really make a difference. Um, Kawhi averaged, he was great all series. He averaged 30 points. Cal Lowry surprised me. He finally stepped up. He didn't shrink in the moment. I mean, he's been in, I don't mean, God, how many Eastern Conference championships he's been in? Maybe this might have been the third or fourth one he's been in. Um, so he finally shined. Uh, he finally played, you know, like he was worth the 30 plus million dollars he gets a season. So he he balled out. He had 19 points he averaged throughout the series. And um, on the Milwaukee side, Brooke Lopez was the second highest scorer at 15 and a half points throughout the series. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. Middleton was around 14 points throughout the series. That's not going to cut it. It's not good enough. So if you just look at what Kawhi and 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 um and Kyle Lowry did throughout the series, with Kawhi at 30 points and Kyle Lowry at 19 points, that's just hard to overcome. That's hard to overcome. That backcourt is just dominated because you got nothing from Bledsoe all series. So that $70 million contract that they gave him, that extension that they gave him, ain't looking so good right now because he shrunk. He, I watched him kill the Celtics. He absolutely killed the Celtics in the, in the semifinal round. Killed them. But when it came to the Raptors, when it came to an elite defending team like Kyle Lowry, who's been on all defensive teams, and obviously Kawhi Leonard, and he just disappeared. He was never the same again throughout the series. So you got nothing from him, and then you had Giannis carrying everything else. So the backcourt with Middleton, and um, and I can't say Middleton had a terrible series, but he just wasn't good enough. He didn't get enough from Middleton. You know, he got just 14 points. You needed about 18 to 20 points from Middleton. And you only got 14. So it's just not enough. And that's why, you know, when they got into those low periods, when they started to lose games, it was those third quarters. The Raptors would just go on these epic runs. You know, I think last night they had a run that was like, what, 23, what was a 23 to 6 run? That just completely evaporated the lead that the Bucks worked so hard to get. 
So, you know, the Bucks has have a lot of things that they have to, you know, look at and evaluate come this offseason. They definitely have to get a really good, you know, all-star-like player at a good price, like a, like a Lou Williams. Can you imagine if the Bucks had Lou Williams coming off the bench? Yeah, the series probably would have been a lot different if you had a score of that of that caliber. So I think that the Bucks definitely have to look at that in the offseason. They have to get a really good, high-caliber, offensive-dominant score to really offset all the trapping and all the zone play that teams are going to start doing to, to, to bottle up Giannis from getting to the rim. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But shout-out to the Raptors fans. They've watched themselves, you know, get destroyed by LeBron year after year. So now it's finally their time to shine. They've been a top two or three team in the East for years, for years. So they're just now getting their just due because, let's face it, LeBron is not in the East anymore. So the Raptors finally made it. So that's awesome. Good fan base out there in Toronto. It's really dope to see that they finally get to experience getting into the finals for the first time in franchise history. That's always a cool thing. And this series between them and the champion, two-time defending champion, Golden State Warriors, is going to be very, very interesting. During this Memorial Day weekend, I got a chance to get caught up. Or, I mean, we're still having the weekend. I'm recording this on Sunday. Look at me. I'm working on Memorial Day weekend uh, vacation, supposed vacation for me and others. And I'm working for you guys. You know why? Because I love you guys. I want you guys to just be entertained during your break as well as mine. But anyway, I checked out the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> the Wu-Tang Clan's docu-series called of Mike and Men. And it, it was it's awesome. If you love hip-hop, if you're a student of the game, if you're just a fan, you will love this docu-series. It just breaks down everything Wu-Tang, how they started where the concepts came from to make certain records and also some strife, some, you know, little, you know, disagreements that the group has had over the years and, and everything. It, it was just really, really detailed. I love how certain things were detailed in the series, how they started. I mean, you know, I didn't even know RZA was already in the industry. He was signed as an artist. Uh, I think he was called Kwame or something like that. I don't remember, but it was just so many dif different details. I, I, what what was so remarkable to me was that they were able to record so much of this early footage back in the days. You know how hard it was to really have that type of mindset because the technology really wasn't there back in the days. You didn't just have a GoPro or you didn't have smartphones that you know are like point and shoot. Uh, quality like back in the days he didn't have any of that stuff so you had to lug around you know a big camcorder just to capture moments the fact that the RZA was smart enough to to capture all of these really really special moments I mean this is like hollowed ground stuff they were showing recordings from Cream when they were recording Cream I mean you had like uh, four or five people in the booth recording their verses you know, at a time, you know, just right there all together. That's why you get that kind of in sync sound. Everything sounds cohesive is because they really was recording with each other inside the booth. It wasn't like, okay, I cut my verse. Now you step in the booth. No, they all was in the booth. That's why everything just sounded so, so good. 
You know what I'm saying? So, yo, it was just dope, man. Like, RZA, I'm telling you, man, RZA is an underrated genius of our era. That guy is a genius. He is smart. He was just so ahead as far as creativity. He was already one of those guys that was preaching independence and having control over your creativity. He was always about that. He did not sacrifice anything. He did not sacrifice their art. He always, always had the intention of keeping the Wu-Tang Clan the way they were. And that was original. And not having labels get in and muck things up. He was like that from the very beginning from their first contract deal with Loud Records as a group. And then he had something in the language where every one of the people involved in a group can go out and get their own side deals, their own recording contracts. And he had a plan for that as far as where certain artists was going. Like he said, yeah, no, Method Man is going to go to Def Jam. And, you know, Old Dirty is going to go to Elektra. And he just he's just a mastermind, man. RZA was very, very smart in a lot of things. I mean, it also detailed a lot of, you know, what was going on with their lives and, you know, how they had to come up from the struggle from Staten Island, hustling. You know, the usual stories that we all come accustomed to if you're from the urban cities, you're from the hood, if you're from, you know, poverty. You know, I can relate to that. You know what I'm saying? So it was just really good to see that and to see how they kind of rose above that. And, you know, I, I didn't realize, also what I didn't realize is the crazy, crazy stuff that ODB went through. ODB went through a lot of craziness in the 90s and up to the early 2000s. Like, he was get, he was targeted by the police. He was being arrested for really nothing. A lot of, you know, uh, you know, I was a little younger at the time. I was out running around in the streets, so I didn't really follow these stories that much. It was just like, oh, OGB's back in jail. He must have wilded out. But the reality was he was targeted a lot. I mean, the guy went to jail and served a sentence, like a three, four-year sentence, because he wore a bulletproof vest in, 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 in California. And apparently, wearing a vest in California is illegal. But he only wore a vest because he was just previously robbed at his home at gunpoint. You know, not to mention before that happened, he was shot by the police back in New York City. So he started to have all these doubts and paranoias as, you know, he started to get later in his life. And he was going to jail just because of him being paranoid about his life. Essentially. He went to jail because he wanted to protect himself, wear a bulletproof vest. Then he gets out of jail to only go back into jail because of some other thing I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't want to spoil the whole thing for you, but it was just a lot of intricate details that I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know as a fan that a lot of these guys were going through. I didn't know you God's son, you know, early on when they were taken off, had, he had got shot in a drive-by shooting. You know, the kid was like two years old got shot through his kidney and everything. And, you know, he was paralyzed temporarily in one of his legs. And then, you know, the kid, the strong kid that he is, pulled through it and started later on walking and stuff like that. I mean, it was just so many different things, you know. It was a lot of little details. And, of course, they covered the business part of it as far as the RZA and his, uh, his brother Divine and how they was kind of cutting up the money and splitting it and how the, the group didn't really, some people, some uh, members of the group didn't really uh, 
agree with how they were going about that type of uh, that type of the business, you know. And most one of those guys was you know Ghostface, you know. But they recorded all of these 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 really intimate moments. And I think the most impressive part about it is again I have to reiterate it is is just the fact that they had the no the know-how to just say, you know what, we need to record everything because this moment in time will come when we have to document it and it will be there for everyone to see. And the fact that they had the foresight enough to think this way 20, 25 years ago is definitely a testament to how, you know, how innovative and how creative the RZA is and how innovative and creative and talented the rest of the group is. It's really, really a dope doc- docu-series. I, I definitely recommend you guys check it out on Showtime. Hey, if you ain't got Showtime, you can't get the free offer or whatever, hey, just borrow it from a, fr- a family member or a friend or something. I don't know. But regardless of the point, if you hip-hop, you need to check out the Wu-Tang docu-series. My Memorial Day weekend watch list continued i finally got a chance to watch the black Klansman, the story of ron stallworth how he infiltrated his way into the kkk he confused a lot of those members and he duped the grand wizard himself david duke into thinking he was a white man i mean that was great i mean uh, the movie's old obviously spike lee won you know finally won that elusive uh, Oscar for best director, he you know or best directed film. I don't remember what category, but he finally took home an Oscar for all the you know. It, it really was like a lifetime achievement award because the guy's been making solid work for more than twenty thirty years. You know he should have had an Oscar for Malcolm X. He shouldn't have had an Oscar for Do the Right Thing. I can go on and on and on about his you know past achievements, but with this particular film, Black Klansman, I was just glad that I finally got the chance to see it. It detailed a lot of stuff about this guy that I didn't know anything about, uh, the Ron Stallworth story. Um, I will say this. The one thing I love about Spike Lee films is that they don't really drag. They don't drag a lot. There's not a real uh, point of the film where you look at it and you're saying, damn, this is really draggy. We can go without 10 to 20 minutes of this filler. But with Spike Lee, he's really good at just getting to what the goal is, what the the central point of the story that he's trying to convey is he's really good at getting there without having those laggy moments. Um, in this story, he, he didn't get into the backstory of how the the character Ron Starworth got to Colorado Springs, Denver. He, he didn't get into all of that. He just got straight to the story. Like, look, he's here now and he's getting ready to be a beat cop. And then he's moving on to become, uh, part of the investigate investigations uh, department, and 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 the and, and the police department. So it was just cool to see how that whole story shaped out. And I love how Spike, which he always does, how he correlates that story with today's time. He brings realism to his stories a lot of the times. And I loved at the end of the movie how he connected those parallels together seamlessly far as what the times were back in those times i think that was the 70s that they were in you know getting off of the whole black panther movement and you know the kkk you know rising more and becoming more of a credible 
a company, a, a more organized company where they started to have a different direction and become and push put their hate in more of an organized way. It detailed that, which I thought was interesting and I thought that was overlooked as well in the story. Look, hate groups, uh, violent groups like the KKK and yeah, let's face it, the Hell's Angels. Yeah, that was a gang. So a lot of people like to wear their t-shirts and everything else. That was a gang. What happened was that these, the leaders of these organizations had a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, where they said, you know what? We have to evolve and change the times. No longer can we just go and just beat up random black people in the streets or string them up on a tree randomly anymore. There'll be some drawback in that because societal changes. So what we need to do is we need to organize our hate, recruit people, and spread this out through politics, through organizations, through you know, um, um, inventing propaganda for people to you know follow and believe in what we believe in. So this is how the KKK reorganized itself. The white supremacist movement became more organized. So the Black Klansman movie kind of details that where you kind of see those little nuggets. Like, you know, you had one guy that recruited the Ron Stallworth character because Ron Stallworth had to have one of the department guys play him because obviously he's not a, a white guy. So what he did was he had the guy play him, but also you've seen a, a, a dynamic in between two different leaderships on uh, in the Colorado Springs unit of the KKK. One guy, Walter, the character, was all about the, the politics and politics in, in making sure that the organization was more in more in line with what David Duke wanted, which was to spread a message through organization rather than fear and violence, which was different from the other character, Felix. He was more of the old KKK vision where it was fear and violence. And there, it was interesting to see that different dynamic and the different approaches that two of the same types of leadership groups had within the same group. So, you know, that's just one part of it. But it was interesting just to bring it back to what Spike did at the end of the film is how he tied it in and, and brought those parallels together. And what I mean by that was the events in 2017 in Charlottesville, where he had a bunch of white supremacists walk in the streets talking about Jews will not replace us, talking, you know, wearing tiki torches, I mean, using tiki torches in the streets. I mean, what what a tough move that is, please. But anyway, doing all of these racist things that you've seen 70, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So it was interesting to see that. Like, all the stuff you've seen in the Black Klansman movie is happening today. The same old shit is happening today. Didn't change one bit. All it did was evolve. The hatred evolved into what we see now. David Duke always envisioned having a president like Donald Trump. He always envisioned it. That's why he was so elated when Donald Trump was elected. The guy wanted to do a backflip somersault when it happened. Because this is what those organizations had always envisioned. When they reorganized themselves and became a more organized hate group not a group that was predicated mostly on fear and violence but more of their you know more predicated on 
the kind of message they send out, once they reorganized and turned into that type of organization, the goal was always to have a president like Donald Trump. And now they have it. So that's why you see Charlottesville's happening. You see the, the white supremacists rise and, and have these marches in the streets. Now, I'll have to detail what happened to Charlottesville. You know, I've already gave my opinion about it. If you could check a previous episode that I've uh, recorded on The Voice Junkie about that, check the archives. But anyway, I mean, it's interesting to see where we've come to. Like, we didn't really change. Not all much has really changed, you know? And I, I, I was sitting there, and I was talking to my wife about it, and I said, you know what? Barack Obama was the lighter, and Trump is the igniter. So what I mean is Barack Obama was the light to help fire up the racists that sat in the caves for so long. And once Donald Trump came in and ignited that fire, used that fire to ignite their excitement, that's why you're seeing the marches in the streets and everybody's just proud to be a racist now in public because they got what they've always wanted, what they've always tried to achieve to get back in the day when David Duke had the vision that he had. And that's to reorganize and to become more integrated into politics to have their ideals integrated into politics in modern day times. And now that result has succeeded because look what we have now as president. So I just thought that the Black Klansman movie was really good at detailing, you know, those two parallels, what was happening in the seventies all the way up into what's happening now. And Spike is masterful at conveying those kind of messages. So it didn't surprise me. I mean, so, it was good that I got that out the way, too, during this Memorial Day weekend. So that's all we got for this week's episode of the Voice Junkie Podcast. I'd like to thank you guys, as always, for checking me out this week. I want you and yours to enjoy this Memorial Day weekend. Have a hot dog on your boy. Have a beer on your boy. And then, you know, enjoy the rest of your time. I'll see y'all next time for the next episode, all right? Peace.